the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Good day, everyone. This is the third episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today's topic is 12 fake claims of Western Christianity. And um, actually, this is uh, a very interesting topic for me because it's part of a chapter of a book that I'm writing, and uh, the working title of the book is Faith, uh, Faith Scam. Uh, the fake claims of Western Christianity and the way of peace it ignores or it lost. I haven't quite worked out the exact title, but there's a chapter on uh, what I would call the 12 major faith claim, fake claims of Western Christianity, or you might call them scams. Um, so, I mean, in today's political client climate, you've got this um, you know, uh, all these claims of fake news. Uh, Trump will claim that the media is spouting fake news and the media will come back and find some things that Trump or his supporters say that uh, aren't based on the facts and say that's fake news. And so it would be interesting to kind of step back and instead of focusing on politics, take that same um, same issue and apply it to religion. Are there fake news claims about Christianity? Are there scams in Christianity? And we're going to examine that today. Um, if you know me, you'll know that uh, my background is that I'm a former evangelical Christian, and uh, I was in the movement for 25 years, uh, including as a missionary. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of taking my journey, what happened to me as I evolved uh, I, 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 even though I had doubts, I really was sold into much of evangelicalism. But a after having uh, a faith crisis of sorts over a period of time, I began to question things. I began to, so to speak, open up the hood of evangelical theology and culture and find that a lot of the things that were being spouted in churches and by preachers and ministers and books that I was reading weren't exactly true. They were either half-truths or they were completely false and not based on a good study of history. So um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what I would call 12 major f uh, uh, faith, uh, fake faith claims and uh, explain why I think they're fake or a scam 
based on historical study and also uncover a more authentic way of looking at that topic so that we actually can find out something that's closer to the truth. Okay, let's look at number one. The number one uh, faith, uh, fake claim or scam is what I would call the scam of religion. Um, Christianity, as we know it today, is a religion. Yet, when you look at the historical record, you'll discover something very uh, amazing, is that Jesus of the first century, and Paul for that matter, uh, both of them did not start a new religion called Christianity. Um, Jesus and Paul were actually not Christians. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, Paul was a Jewish Pharisee, and they advocated for rethinking Judaism uh, and the Jewish scriptures um, and, and traditions per reforms that they found in the writings of the prophets and in, their, and, in particular in Jesus' revelations. Um, so what, they, what was going on was that they weren't calling for a new religion. Uh, they were calling for a reform, let's say a reformed universe, universalist way of looking at Judaism. Um, you know, there were many examples of this. Um, Ju- Jesus told his uh, Jewish hearers that they should go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, Jesus, what he was doing was critiquing the Jewish temple sacrificial system and the exclusivist religion that Judaism had become in some circles in a lot of in, in the temple religion um, of the day. Um, and, and he was doing it just almost very similar to the way the prophets had done before him. So he wasn't founding a new religion, um, and uh, he actually did not become, or Paul did not become what we call a Christian. Um, what was going on was a, a challenge for people to start living, uh, having this new reformed universalist way of looking at Judaism and to live a new, uh, what I might call a metaphysical or humanistic way of life free of religion. Uh, humanistic uh, used in a sense that it's, you know, um, the sp- supporting human welfare uh, of all human beings. So it, it, it was a promotion of a new way of life. Uh, certainly it had religious elements. It was talking about a God of love who was, was real. Uh, it was talking about trusting this God, but it wasn't requiring and, in fact, wasn't uh, promoting uh, religious practice. Um, so, anyways, that's the first uh, fake claim or scam, uh, the scam of religion, that uh, the way of Jesus actually was not meant to be a new religion, uh, a new um, a religion to replace Judaism, uh, etc. It was more of a reformed way of and a universalist way of looking at Judaism and the world. Okay, what's scam number two? Uh, well, scam number two is what I would call the scam of the church. And again, if you look at history and you dig around a little bit and you have an open mind, you'll find out something along these lines, that Jesus did not found an institutional church. Uh, he talked about this uh, term in the Greek, ecclesia, 
which simply was a gathering of people. Um, he, uh, when he talked about, um, you know, I will build my church, he was talking about, I will build a following of people. Um, that same word is used uh, in the book of Acts to describe a mob of people who came after Paul. It's a word that just denotes a gathering. It, w- it has no nothing to do with a formal institution, a uh, formal church. Um, it's gatherings of people who uh, are listening and following the te- teachings of Jesus. So, um, uh you know, when you there's a there's a several books, by the way, I'll, each one of these uh, points that I'm making are based on some historical study. And every once in a while, I'll let you know what what book would be a good book to to get the uh, background for this. One of them would be uh, Pagan Christianity uh, by Frank Viola uh, for this particular one. But um, it's it's just interesting. I actually already uh, my last pod, podcast actually. Uh, address this when I address the difference between Christianity uh, and church. Um, there's a huge difference. And so um, you can go back and listen to that part, but I'll just uh, make a few more points about this point um, about this scam. Um, you know, we, we have this kind of uh, outlook about what church is, you know, if we grew up Roman Catholic or Protestant or evangelical or charismatic or mainline church, you know, you go to these churches and some of them are more contemporary and some of them are more traditional, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things that we're, we're talking about in church, there was nothing like this in the first century. Jesus and his followers did not set this up. This, this, this came, uh, this way of gathering in buildings with professional clergy and with, uh, uh, titles of people who were leading the church and, and uh, pa- pastors who, who, uh, who are professionals and um, some of the hierarchy that we have in some church systems, uh, as well as uh, this doctrine that there's a, that churches have authority over their members uh, and, and that you, if you don't go to church, um, you know, you're not really a good Christian, et cetera, et cetera, all these kinds of things developed over um, the first few centuries uh, of after Jesus and really culminated when um, Constantine, the emperor of Rome at the time, became a, a supposed Christian and began to uh, impose a lot of things on Christianity uh, as a religion. And one of those things was developing the professional clergy and church buildings, etc., um, uh, and before that, it was a slow process of, uh, the, the first time people, um, even talked about things like bishops was probably the, um, second or third century. Um, there was, uh, you know, going back to the very, uh, original, um, gatherings of believers, uh, there was no church. Uh, they were meeting in homes there was no, uh, no one was paid to be a pastor or a priest. Uh, there was people who had gifts and they were called uh, elders or uh, Paul had some motivational uh, gifts that he talked about, teachers and prophets, etc., cetera, uh, and including a pastor, but uh, pastors. But those were all um, 
just people who were had skills that were helping each other in the in their in that gathering they weren't uh uh, offices where people would, you know, attain or get ordained and and become that particular office in a in a formal way. So um, it's it's a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, if you read that book, Pagan Christianity, it, it it'll open your eyes to to this particular scam that has been fostered on uh, Western Christianity and, um, for for centuries. Okay, let's go on to scam number three. And scam number three I call the Bible scam. And actually, before I get into this, uh, I'm really not doing justice to each one of these. Um, I could do a podcast on each one and have already done a podcast on, let's say, uh, uh, the church to some degree. Um, But um, I'm just going to be touching touching the tip of the iceberg on some of these things so we'll get into more later and if if any if you have questions about any of these things feel free to just comment on my blog and or ask questions and we can get into more details but the bible scam goes something like this um when you look uh, at the way that people view the bible today mostly conservative christians evangel- evangelicals charismatics fundamentalists uh, sometimes mainline churches, although they have a more progressive view of the Bible, um, but uh, even historically uh, through some of the Christian movements in Western Christianity, mostly people believe in something like a uh, infallible, um, altogether authoritative uh, Bible throughout. Uh, everything in the Bible is wor- the Word of God. It can never be questioned. Um, it's all true. Uh, there's nothing false in it. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now there might be some nuance in some people's view that maybe they'll think, uh, I mean, there might be a few historical inaccuracies, but most of the theology is right. Uh, or, you know, a more narrow view that everything has to be completely true. And, and the evangelicalism I was in, it was mostly is a, the Bible's infallible and you have to believe everything. If God said it, then we believe it and that settles it. And that was kind of the attitude for the Bible. Well, here's the thing. Look at history. The big question is, and this is what evangelicals never address, is to answer the question, how was the Bible compiled? And how did people view the Bible at the time of Jesus? Uh, And what you'll discover if you answer those two questions historically, that both Jesus and Paul, for example, did not believe in an inerrant, universally applicable an authoritative Bible. Uh, most of these Bible theologies we have today are based on historical myths. Um, the Bible was never really viewed if in, in Jewish ways and history as an infallible rule book. Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, what we would call a definitive list of, of books in the uh, Old Testament didn't even happen until the second century after the the after Jesus uh, altogether after the f- formation of Christianity, um, there was no definitive list of scriptures for the Jews during Jesus's time. As far as the New Testament goes, that again took many uh, centuries. Not until the fourth century, until there was a definitive list or a canon of of books for the New Testament. And again, there it was not um, a viewed like this is the the exact bible and it's already settled uh 
the the scriptures for the Jews and for the earliest uh, followers of Jesus um, were more like uh, a set of uh, writings that people debated. Uh, the Jewish uh, scriptures actually were some some of the only religious sacred texts that we have that actually critiqued itself. And uh, most people are, are completely miss this because they're taught that you shouldn't think of the Bible that way. Well, read the prophets. The prophets critique the Torah all the time. They critique the sacrificial system. They uh, critiqued other Jewish people and their their interpretations of, of things. So um, uh, this, this notion that everything in the Bible was, um, you know, uh, universally accepted and all consistent uh, and internally consistent is just, just doesn't measure up to the study of history nor uh, make any sense when you actually look at the Bible with 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 uh, uh, objectively so um, let me give you a few more examples here um, um, you know one of the things would be how the um, for example um, at the time of Christ uh, the Sadducees only considered the Torah to be uh, the scriptures um, other Jews, of course, accepted the, both the prophets and the writings. The Greek Jews had the Septuagint, which included 14 books um, that are not in any Protestant Bible today. Um, but the Greek Jews and the Greek Christians considered those scripture. Uh, that's called the Apocrypha. Um, the Essenes, another sect of Judaism, they had their own set of writings that uh, uh, in addition to the Torah prophets and and uh, other books that they deemed authoritative, and some of those writings um, are actually referred to. One of them, called First Enoch, is referred to in the New Testament Book of Jude. Um, so there were various sets of scriptures that each Jewish sect or stream considered their kind of list. But they weren't like pointing fingers at each other and saying, well, you're not a true Jew unless you accept my list. They had debates, but they accepted each other as it's okay to have your own list of sacred text. Um, the New Testament was very similar to that uh, over a period of time. Um, the uh, Gospels were compiled and the letters of Paul and other books. Um, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened very uh, very slowly and gradually. And you can see it, there were areas of Palestine and the areas where Christians were moving where you would go to one area and, and say, well, let me see your sacred texts. And they would have their set. And then you'd go somewhere, another region and they would have a different set. Uh, th this, this was very common. And uh, all the books that we have in the New Testament now, they, you know, the, the lists of scriptures uh, often had books that were not, never made it into the New Testament. God, different Gospels, the Gospels of Hebrews, a book called The Shepherd of Hermes, and many, many other books. So um, uh, there was no definitive list for centuries, not until the fourth century. Um, what does this tell us, that what this tells us, that, that, that people looked at the Bible differently? Uh, it was okay to have uh, views on different sacred texts, which ones you liked, which ones you preferred. Uh, sometimes people didn't have access to all of them, but sometimes they just preferred some over the other. Uh, and 
like I said before, um, you know, there were lots of books that never made it into the New Testament that people deemed author- uh, as scripture by Orthodox Christians, not heretics. Not, you know, yes, there was some of that going on too. There were some some really wild and crazy books too, but there were lots of books that were just considered okay to have on your sacred text list. Um, so um, maybe in another podcast I'll get into more depth about this, but um, uh, it, it was it's very fascinating. Uh, the Bible was kind of a book that was debated. Uh, it critiqued itself. People had different lists of what they considered Scripture. Um, and in the New Testament, eventually, the, yes, there were some books that were considered that should were considered pretty much almost by everyone. The gospel, four Gospels, for example, um, others like Revelation and Hebrews were highly disputed, um, and some people rejected them, uh, and even rejected ones that wound up in the New Testament over the centuries. So uh, that was the view of, of, of Scripture. So that's very different than what we have today. Now, the question is, of course, well, how do you know what the truth is then if, if, if you're saying not everything is correct or infallible? Well, like I said, there was debates that went on, uh, and Jesus actually entered into these debates over the scriptures and, you know, often said things like, well, you've heard it said this, well, I tell you this. And um, he uh, actually used Old Testament scriptures selectively, he sometimes added uh, things to the scriptures, like uh, he added the, uh, the, the command, love your neighbor as, uh, or love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He added the word mind that was not in the original. So, um, and there were some other examples of this, uh, where he either added or, uh, uh, read selectively from the old Testament and often quoted the prophets who were actually critiquing many of the laws in the Torah. Um, so anyways, how do you, um, uh, tell what's true in the Bible? Well, that's another, uh, uh, topic that we could discuss later. And it really has to do with, uh, two, two things that I could tell from, uh, reading history. And one is maybe perhaps looking at the Bible through the lens of Jesus's teachings, uh, and, and his, uh, way, his love ethic, and 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 comparing what the Bible is saying, and and then letting the love ethic that Jesus taught rise to the top. And there's actually, it's really not that hard to do. Um, you know, people often would, might might say to me, "Well, heck, you can't pick and choose what's what you think is the word of God and what's not." That's that's what you're doing, Michael. Uh, well, the answer to that question is yes, you can pick and choose. And the reason is, is because that's how the Bible was compiled. People picked and chose what was in the Bible. Jesus picked and chose how to interpret the Old Testament and what to teach. Um, uh, the, the Old Testament critiqued itself. Uh, Orthodox Christians critiqued, uh, books that wound up in the New Testament. And, uh, they, um, had books that didn't wind up in the New Testament that they liked. So uh, this is the way it was uh, in the religious climate of the day when the Bible was being compiled, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be that way today instead of being so hard-nosed about what's true and what's not in the Bible. So uh, just a couple of uh, uh, authors I want to bring to your attention. 
Uh, Derek Flood has a really good book called Disarming Scripture that's kind of gets into uh, reading the Bible like Jesus did. Um, N.T. Wright has some good stuff on the Bible, Marcus Borg and Michael Harden. So anyways, that's the scam number three, the Bible scam. Very fascinating topic. So what's the next scam? Number four. The number four scam I have is what I call the scam of a two-faced God. And um, this is related to the Bible scam. Because one of the things that you find if you open your mind and you read the Bible and you say, what is, what's really going on here? What, what comes to the top that as a superior way, a superior teaching, and what goes to the bottom, bottom as an inferior teaching when I read the Bible? And what you'll find is that it's, it is almost like there is two voices in the Bible. There's the voice of Jesus, the compassion, forgiveness, the restorative nature of God, um, merciful, etc., and on the other side, there's the God of retribution and wrath and violence even. Uh, and so you'll, you'll see this very clearly when you open your mind and you read the Bible this way. There's a, a, a nonviolent God of peace and a violent God of war and blood sacrifice. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but you can find this uh, when you look at certain passages in Scripture and um, it really does come out like there's God has got kind of two personalities. And you wonder, which God are we serving? Which God is going to show up? Um, you know, as a, a evangelical pastor um, said recently, God is a father who loves us, a loving father who saves us. But he's also a wrathful judge who may damn us. And so this is the way that most uh, Western Christianity, in particular evangelicals and conservative Christianity, has been taught to view God, this two-faced way. Oh, yeah, he's a God of love, but he's really pissed off at your sin. And, you know, you know you're, you're in danger of going to hell. Uh, there's going to be retribution. There's going to be hell to pay if you don't, you know, get your act together or believe the right things etc etc so um uh this uh when you look at the history of the first jesus followers and what was being debated uh this really comes out to be a scam there is there is no two-faced god either god is a god of love uh or god is a god of retribution and wrath you can't be both uh evangelicals will tell you there are that has to be both uh but um, as I, I will in a, a future podcast and as I will in, the, in this uh, ch- in a chapter in my book that I'm going to write about this topic, um, it's very easy to show how nonsensical this is. Uh, when you compare, for example, the uh, characteristics and the personality of the God in the book of Joshua to the characteristics and the personality of the God of, of, that Jesus is teaching. So that would be one, one example. Okay, moving right along. The number five scam is the hell scam. A lot of books came out in the last 12 to 15 years on this topic. It kind of blew me away. When I first started my uh, historical research on this topic of hell, I, I was uncovering things, and I thought, oh, man, 
um, why aren't people talking about this? Well, as slowly but surely, a lot of books came out uh, on this topic. Uh, Rob Bell kind of is the most famous one, a book called Love Wins. Um, uh, Raising Hell by Sharon Baker. Uh, My friend Julie Ferwerda wrote a book called uh, Raising Hell with an S. The other Raising Hell is with a Z. Uh, there's The Inescapable Love of God by Tom Talbot. There's The Evangelical Universalist by Robin Perry. There's the movie Hellbound, produced by Kevin Miller. Um, all of these materials and resources basically uncover the following. They uncover the that Jesus actually did not teach the existence of hell. Uh, there are mistranslations from the Greek terms that are translated hell. Uh, uh, when you understand the context and the cultural context and where the concept of hell came from, you can trace it through history. It did not come from Jewish uh, religion, faith. It did not come from Jesus's teachings. Uh, It actually came from some ancient pagan Egyptian and Near East religious beliefs. And throughout history, certain uh, empires would use the teaching for political reasons to get people to be, to control people in society through through fear of the afterlife or f- fear of the unknown, etc. Um, when you look very m- more closely at what Jesus taught, um, he taught uh, you know the term eternal punishment that you find in the New Testament is actually a mistranslation. It should be. Um, uh, a more proper translation would be rehabilitation uh, of the age. Um, uh, the The word that's translated punishment is actually a word that means correction or um, or uh, uh, loving uh, uh, correction and and helping someone to rehabilitate and change. Uh, it has uh, there's another word that means punishment and that word is not used. Um, another word that's translated hell is Gehenna, which was the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. And, um, the views of Gehenna in the time period of Jesus, you can read some of them in, uh, documents and those views, uh, uh, match, uh, a view of, a, of Gehenna as a metaphor for corrective judgment, a judgment that ultimately ends. Uh, so, uh, to say that Jesus didn't teach hell does not mean that, you know, Jesus didn't believe that, you know, God would confront evil in, in, in humankind or that there is such a thing as God judging people. It means that in his view uh, and in Paul's view, God was always restorative and not retributive. His goal and his will will always restore people and there is no such thing as eternal punishment or eternal hell. There's a time to rehabilitate people and to help people and to correct people. But it's not, uh, you know, an afterlife where you either make it to heaven or you go to hell. Um, so um, uh, this is a fascinating topic. Uh, another thing that you'll, rec- you'll see if you study history. Um, there's another book that I didn't mention that's actually called Universalism, the Prevailing Doctrine of the Christian Church During Its First 500 Years. You'll find that uh, um, this is not a weird view. When you go back to the first, second, and third century, this is what most people believed. Uh, 
they believe they didn't believe in what the, our notion, our modern notion uh, of hell or eternal damnation. Um, there's been universalist uh, thinking among Christians throughout history, um, particularly uh, Eastern Christians, groups like the Nestorians and the Jacobites, um, but also even in some minority Western streams. Uh, Julian of Norwich, for example, uh, the Moravians, the Anabaptists, the Quakers, uh, all um, all of these groups had uh, streams in thinking and sympathet- sympathetic words for the notion of universalism. Uh, and they did not teach fire, uh, hellstone, <laughs> fire and brimstone hell like so many uh, fundamentalist preachers do. Uh, some notable figures in history who were universalists, John Adams, the second president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Clara Barton, uh, uh, many, many other people um, um, that you you would be surprised, uh, and even some um, Christians that are fairly famous like, um, oh, what's his name, um, George MacDonald, who was a, a friend of C.S. Lewis, was a notable universalist. But anyways... Uh, lots of uh, 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 evidence that this 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 doctrine of hell was a scam that slowly came, um, actually came into uh, pro- um, belief for the Jews um, after the Old Testament era and 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 before the New Testament era, where they started to believe some of the pagan beliefs from Babylon that they picked up. And then was not a strong belief, really. It was a minority belief for uh, for a while. Jesus didn't teach it. Jesus didn't uh, continue it. If he did, he would have used different words in Greek um, that he used. So anyways, it's a very um, fascinating topic. That is scam number five. Okay, we're ready to talk about scam number six. Uh, scam number six is what I call the scam of original sin. Now, um, one of the things I want to make a point before I go on with this one, and this is true of all of these uh, scams that I'm talking about. I mean, for example, if you went back up and you thought, oh, okay, um, scam of the church. This guy doesn't believe in community. No, that's not true. Uh course there is such a thing as community that is revolved around the teachings of jesus and his love ethic Um, uh, there's nothing wrong wrong in and of itself of someone going to church it's what's wrong is when someone claims that the institutional churches that we have today is what jesus was talking about or what paul was talking about that's the problem Uh, when you look at the bible scam for example the bible scam uh, what I'm not saying is that all of the Bible is a myth and you can't trust any of it. No, there are very inspirational messages in the Bible and there's a lot that you can learn from the Bible. But it can't be taken as altogether true. It has to be weighed and you've got to see what comes to the top. And it's not rocket science. Uh, we'll, you'll see that uh, later if, you're, if you read some of the books I've cited or you come, come back and look at a, uh, listen to a podcast on that topic. So, uh, again, um, hell uh, scam doesn't mean there's not a judgment or uh, a way of God um, uh, try, um, correcting evil people. And it's, it's not like people are uh, you know, allowed to come into heaven or something just because j- at the drop of a hat. No, I mean, there are 
God is restoring people. He's not uh, um, allowing evil to go on uh, in such a way where uh, evil people are, are go to heaven or something like this. This is this is just a different way of looking at what what God wanted once for all humankind, and He's a God of restoration, not retribution. Um, and finally, this number six is what I call the scam of original sin. And the point here would be that um, uh, just because there is a a scam about this doctrine of original sin doesn't mean there isn't a doctrine of sin in the Bible. Uh, You can find the doctrine of sin in the earliest faith communities. Uh, You know, uh, the evil of humankind and sinful deeds and harming other people. These are very serious things. But what the what I'm talking about here in the scam of original sin is this, the notion that humankind is totally depraved um, from the moment every human is born. That this is somehow some kind of uh, condition that we've inherited from Adam. Um, there's a an author named Robert Arnold. He wrote a book called uh, Eastern Orthodoxy Revisited. Um, He says, The doctrine of original sin is a hideous one, and it found its way into the Western theological construct through the flawed Latin text of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, having passed through the dark imagination of Augustine. Um. So he's talking about how this view of original sin started. Uh, Augustine uh, mistranslated uh, a verse in Romans, came up with this idea that we're all de- all humans are depraved from the beginning, uh, and then um, during the Reformation, uh, this view was expounded by people like Calvin, uh, and and who taught that humankind's uh, even though we we might have the image of God, he he taught that it was marred beyond recognition, so that we are all trapped in total depravity. Um, so uh, Calvin went on to uh, you know have a a doctrine that none of us could do anything good unless God intervened in some way, and then even. More than that, God actually chose who who He was going to save and intervene uh, and restore, um, and He didn't choose everyone. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, um, that's another uh, doctrine of uh, of Calvinism that will be an interesting source, uh, uh, interesting topic of conversation. But as far as original sin goes, um, the Eastern Orthodox uh, theology that I discovered. Um, has a, a it has a doctrine of sin, but it's really quite different. It it's not only different, it really has a totally um, a, a much more hopeful view uh, that that I think makes much more sense. And that view is that humans are born spiritually immature. They're not totally depraved. We have the image of God according to uh, Genesis. Um. As one way of looking at it is our spiritual eyes may be damaged, but they were never totally destroyed. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh, view is that God's beautiful image uh, we still have, 
uh, and we are capable of drawing on God uh, who's within every human being. Uh, and we are capable of initiating um, rest- restoration with God because of that beautiful image in us. Uh, we are not in some reprobate state destined for hell unless God chooses to save us, which is what Calvinism is. Or, well, what do you know? Sorry about that. Uh, forgot to unplug this phone next to me. <laughs> Anyways, um, where was I? Uh, we are not in some reprobate state destined for hell unless God chooses to save us, which was is what Calvinism is. Or unless we choose... Christ as Lord and Savior before we die, which is another view called Armenianism. Um, but the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox view is that we are destined to grow into maturity and wholeness. Uh, um, not everyone is perfect, and that's the doctrine of sin, but everyone is worthy of God's love, and there is no depraved state. Um, so, I mean... What I discovered was if you believe in this doctrine of original sin in the kind of uh, Augustinian Calvinist way, uh, you end up just dividing the whole world into this us versus them. You look at the whole world with an us versus them mentality. We're saved. They're not. Everyone's got this depravity and we got we got in because we did the right things or we believe the right doctrines or we accepted Christ and all these people aren't. And they're, you know, they can't really know truth. They're, they can never be really good. And that's a very destructive way to look at the world. Uh, it's an us versus them mentality, and um, it causes a lot of trouble. So anyways, that is scam number six, uh, the original sin scam. Um, the Western way of viewing it, uh, I would argue, is not historical. The Eastern Orthodox view of uh, way of viewing it is um, much more um, compassionate and and consistent with what Jesus taught and how Jesus acted towards people. Um, I'm not saying it's the, also the right view either. I'm just saying that, that in my studies, it resonates with me. Uh, and the Western view of original sin does not, not only doesn't resonate, but doesn't uh, pass the historical tests. So those are the first six scams of Western Christianity that I'm going over. And I just realized that we're going to have to do two parts to this podcast because I'm, uh, I usually won't like to make these about 45 minutes long and we're getting close to that. So we will go through uh, scams seven through 12 in the next podcast. And I'll just let you know what the titles of them are so you can know what's upcoming up. And then we'll go into each one of them and and uh, explain how, uh, how, um, why they're, why I believe they're scams, why other people uh, believe they are, and why the evidence for supporting that in history. Um, scam number seven is uh, what I call the substitutional atonement scam. Uh, that uh, the definition of, of how do you describe what the meaning of Jesus dying on the cross is. Uh, the scam number eight is the end time scam. Why, uh, how people believe that we are in the end times, uh, that there is such a thing as the end times and the, the world's going to end, that kind of a notion, and why that's a scam. Uh, the misogyny scam is scam number nine. Uh, there's the D 
deep prejudice against women and Western Christianity and uh, why uh, I'll go into why that is not true given history and how uh, the uh, the original Greek some of the original Greek passages in the New Testament we'll look at those and how women were actually honored and how uh, eventually um, anti-women bias crept into the scriptures and crept into the early church um, Number 10 is the morality scam. This is a really interesting one. I'm going to talk about uh, French theologian Jacques Ellul um, and what he, the case that he makes about how to look at morality from, a, from Jesus' perspective and how um, he makes the case that, uh, that the revelation of Jesus uh, or God has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with love, uh, and we'll get into that. Uh, number 11 is the scam of spiritual exchange. This is a fascinating one. This is the notion that um, in order to get something from God, you've got to do something. You've got to give something. There's this exchange going on. It start, started with a sacrificial system. You sacrifice something, you get forgiven. You do this, God does something. You pr- In this case, it's... It's about praying or doing religious acts to get God to do something and how this is really built into evangelicalism and most people's view of Christianity and how it's really not uh, the historical way of looking at it. And the tw- uh, 12th scam is what I, I am calling the scam of glorifying war and violence and, and you know, addressing the question, gee, why are... You know, if Jesus is a uh, nonviolent, uh, peaceful, forgiving, merciful teacher um, who did not seek revenge, you know, why aren't we nonviolent? Why do we support war? Uh, is the just war th- theory really historical, uh, or did that um, uh, develop years, year and years after Jesus' teachings in in a man-made uh, construct in a church? church institution so that's the last one and so those are i would what i call would call the 12 major fake fake claims or scams of western christianity um from my historical study uh and we'll we'll get into the last six in the next episode so um i'm going to conclude that here and not belabor these points but thank you so much for listening and again Uh, ask questions, make comments on the blog, and we'll continue the conversation. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, 
discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.